Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two humans with real pulses as opposed to computer-generated voices. It's the real-life double act of myself, independent analyst Richard Kramer, and the economist and author Will Page. And this is what we do, lay out the inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work. We're now deep into our inquisition about AI and ChatGPT giving you dinner party conversation fodder to make you appear smarter for the next six months. And we're going to get another layer of training data today, talking to some <laughs> of the biggest names in AI. We want to get into the controversy over Boomi with the co-founder, Alex Mitchell. To date, artists, and I say that in inverted commas, on Boomi have created, with the help of some clever algorithms, 16 million original tracks. That's more music than iTunes delivered at its peak. And most of them apparently are now available on Spotify to stream after some controversial takedown episodes. Is this AI in action, a dystopian future, or the shape of things to come? We'll be back in a moment with Alex Mitchell, co-founder of Boomi. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Alex, welcome to Bubble Trouble. It's a real honor to get you on the show. Things are moving fast in this space, which makes this podcast timely. And that's 60 million tracks. I calculated that at the very peak of iTunes, that's how many songs they had to offer. Your company is offering the same volume as iTunes at its peak. So the key to kicking off a great podcast is to assume no prior knowledge, no prior knowledge at all. And uh, let's assume that, and you tell our audience what Boomi is. Imagine it's a kid in a bedroom putting songs up on DistroKid, or a parent of a kid in a bedroom putting songs up on DistroKid. What do they need to know about Boomi? Yeah, sure. So at Boomi, we have a pretty simple mission, which is to transform ordinary humans into creative musicians. And you mentioned the 16 million songs. One of the things that I would just start out with here is that I we see that as a small number, not a big number. I think that we think about when you think about the musicality of humans in the world, right? I mean, how many musicians are there? Probably somewhere between 8 million Spotify say eight million creators. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there are what eight billion humans, something like that. <laughs> I think interesting. Every, I mean, to some degree, I really believe that every person, every human being, is musical. I mean, mm -hmm. as musicians and as a musician myself, you know, what do we do? We do two things: we create a song, and then we listen back to that song and we decide what we should do with it and how we should change it. And that tends to be tied to the education we've received, the specialization we've received. I was very lucky to have a public school that had great music education and come up with a family that was musical. But 
most people in the world, and particularly when emerging markets don't have access to the time, the training, the education, the tools needed to express themselves with music. And so AI to me is a function that we can use to draw musicality out of every person on the planet. And I think one of the analogs that, one of the analogies that I like to use is photos, right? We've got, you're saying 16 million songs, iTunes at its peak. There are 400 million, 500 million photos. And God knows how many videos that go to social media sharing networks every day, every 12 to 14 hours. The difference being specialization and the desire for people to share visual imagery and communicate through visual imagery. And what is really exciting to me about the potential for this technology is to draw that musicality out of people, right? So again, there's, I think a lot of people want to talk about AI and the technology, and that's super interesting. But fundamentally, what we're here to do is if you want to express yourself with music, we want to give you the tools to be able to do that regardless of your prior specialization. We're off to a flyer, and let's just build that point out. Eight million out of eight billion is a fascinating point to think about. It really is. I was on the BBC show with Samir Ahmed, a show called Front Row, and we had this performer called Lisa O'Neill in the studio, and she said that we're exposed to our first music, our first rhythm, before we were born. She's quite adamant about this point. So those eight billion people have all been exposed to rhythm or are interested in rhythm, and you're opening the floodgates to get them all involved. So... Again, to reiterate what Richard said in the introduction, the key to a good podcast is not to have a great conversation, but it's to make your listeners look good at dinner parties. So I've got a couple (laughs) of higher bound dinner party questions for you here. Sure. If we take AI as a catch-all term, do you think AI as it currently stands is a problem in search for a solution or a solution in search of a problem? Like what is the actual use case? You've illustrated one, but is that higher bound what are we actually doing here? Before we get into the rabbit hole of what you're up to, let's just stick up the upper bound there. Yeah, look, I think one of the big challenges that I've seen in many of the conversations that, that I've been having with a lot of different people in the industry over the last couple of months is this very loose and very fast changing definition of what we mean when we say AI, right? Mm-hmm. And so in order to kind of look at the question of, well, is it a catch-all phrase to describe a problem? Like, what do we, what is AI, Right. And Mm -hmm. to me, my own definition is, well, it's really just a shorthand for automation. That tends to be how it's used in practice. I'll give you a great example. I don't think that anybody that I know in the AI research field, anybody on the music side, really anybody would call a otherwise normally produced song, right, in a studio, usually a digital audio workstation, using traditional methods that happens to have a deep fake vocal on it, right? as a AI generated song, right? That like the notion that you would call that AI music is less than six months old in in my view, right? right? Which started with sort of the fake Drake stuff and all that saying, wow, look at this AI generated music. What are we going to do? And it, and you're like, okay, there are Elvis impersonators, right? There, there are people who can like impersonation isn't dependent on AI. And if you're looking at that song and calling it AI generated, that is a very different definition than what I would say is AI generated. So I think it starts from just saying that this is a fundamental set of technologies, the methodologies of which are changing very rapidly, are advancing very rapidly. And I try to use the word automation as much as possible. I try to use other terminology as much as possible because I, I agree with you. I think it can be it can be a confusing catch-all term that people jump to the end of the world with very quickly sometimes. So let's move from that to the hysteria that surrounds AI and music. You've already touched on a couple of interesting points with the Elvis impersonator example. 
This week, I think I've been asked to keynote four conferences, all under the title, Is AI Killing Musical Creativity? For God's sake, man. This hysteria has got to stop, please. And I want you to stop it. I want you to stop it. Now, to tee this up, I want to get historical context. When we went through lockdown, I had a terrible lockdown. I set myself the goal of three things. Learn how to run. I have to thank my co-presenter for Richard Kramer for getting my 10K under an hour. Learn Spanish. I failed abysmally. And learn how to play Def Leppard's Hysteria on guitar. And I was shocked to learn that Joe Elliott had a computer-manipulated voice during his career. He never got up that high. Computers got up that high. Can you just cool the heads for a second and give us a calmer interpretation of what AI is bringing to music compared to the hysteria of the, the wolves are at the door hysteria that we're hearing in the press? We've yeah, been manipulating computer music for years. Exactly, right? So let's kind of dive into where the hysteria is coming from then, right? If, if, this, if it's obvious, if there's a few things that are obvious, right? It's obvious that people have been using algorithms to create music for a very long time and rules-based approaches even before that. It's obvious that some of the music and artists that we enjoy have been using automation, right? Mm. Or even various forms of AI for a long time. I was talking to a very well-known producer this morning who's like, I've been using AI since 2014, right? 2015 like in my audio workstation, yeah. right? Like there, like there's, there have been these automated processes for a long time. So, so why is there hysteria, right? Where does it come from? And I think in order to have hysteria, you have to have a fear. And people fear artists, people fear what they don't understand. And I think people fear what they don't, what they can't control. And I think that there's a lot of noise and a lot of lack of understanding. But let's be clear about what we are afraid of. We, meaning the music industry, is afraid mm-hmm. of here, right? I think that a technology in and of itself existing is not something to be afraid of, right? That and that feels obvious. If you had some sort of doomsday weapon, but nobody could press the button on it, it wouldn't be scary, right? It's only scary if it actually can cause harm. I think what people this is just me editorializing here for the dinner party. But I think that what is scary is actually those other 8 billion people, that other 99.9%, right? This idea that you're going to take this sort of inevitability, right? Because we've been trending this way for a long time. The number of artists, like automation has been creating more artists for decades and decades. It's been simpler and simpler, not just to create, but also to to distribute, to your point, and to participate in the music economy. And eventually, if it's if the some of the principles I laid out in the beginning are true, which is that most people are musical, most people probably could create music or would want to express themselves musically if they had the tools to do so, well, eventually that's going to converge to a point where the tools are so simple and the interface is so, so easy, that interface now probably being text and natural language, that you're going to have a lot more participation. So are we afraid of AI or are we afraid of greater participation in this way mm-hmm. that we was maybe happening faster or accelerating an existing trend? And I think that's where you get into the interesting conversations about the impacts, right, of what's going to happen in this universe where you've got maybe even a billion artists, a billion musicians, eight billion musicians. That's the really kind of interesting, sticky stuff that I think people are having lots of talks about. I want to push back here on something you said, because I think it's a very benign and kind of, it's a techno-optimist, techno-futurist kind of reversion to say, it's just tools. We're just democratizing this, this medium for everyone. Now, 
The simple economic reality is that AI has been used to create an enormous volume of production music, which has flooded streaming platforms and has diluted or diverted some of the funding that would go to legitimate artists practicing the craft as we knew it. And maybe you're saying we should just burn down this previous notion we had of the craft as we knew it, playing instruments, for example, and enter the grand new world. But you cannot dismiss that that democratization of tools has been a net negative for a lot of legitimate artists who follow the old school path. Now, are you telling us we just need to jump that shark? Are you telling us there's been none of that pernicious economic impact, which I think we we would argue against? But I'm struggling to accept this pure autonomous technology tools-based vision that just says, oh, we're going to democratize a billion or two billion Bachs or Beethovens or Princes or David Bowies. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, there's a few there's a few things in there that we can get into. I would actually take it one one step at a time. In no way is that my argument, to, to be honest with you. I don't think that I think that saying it's just a tool is a coping mechanism for the fear that okay. I just sort of laid out. Right. It's saying, well, we don't have to be scared of this thing. And I'm not even saying that there are not some legitimate concerns, but I'm going to take I'm going to take issue with, I guess, describe to me a, a legitimate artist. Right. Because I think the narrative that there is all of this AI generated music out there, right? What I've never really, I would just take issue with the premise. I've always taken issue with this premise over the last few years. There is a, at least with the way that we operate, right? There's a heartbeat behind every single one of these songs. There is no, I've never met a, an AGI, right? That decided in its, in its AI wisdom. Infinite that wisdom. The thing that it Infinite just, yeah, that the thing that it decided to, it said, hi, I'm an autonomous AI, I think for myself. And the thing that I want to do is produce a song. No, it's that these are people. These are human beings who are yeah. using, Yeah, I, I don't know, just a tool feels wrong because it is so powerful what this stuff can do, but are still using, let's, technology, right, to express themselves with music. And I'm going to take an issue also with the notion of dilution. I think if you're pouring water into water, you just have more water. That's not dilution. And I think that what you're getting to here but, when we talk about legitimate, like there's such a thing as a legitimate artist and not a legitimate artist. That is a, that's a debate that I don't want to, I don't want it to minimize it because I think, look, I'm a right. violinist. Okay. Right. Uh, I think you can draw up, a purity a speeded, line anywhere. Right. A speeded yeah. up version of someone's track published by a different artist, a speeded up version of a track. That's, is that a legitimate artist or is it theft? That well, that feels like like theft to me, but that isn't anything right. close to what we're working on. And, I think there are there some apps that do that. Are, sure, yeah, there are, and there are many companies who've monetized a business model that says we will just make subtle ch- variations or white noise tracks or what have you, random using tools that are using automation. They will generate random music and get it inserted into playlists to extract some of that pool of revenue that's attached to the entire music industry. And that's been a net negative for a lot of people who wouldn't take that approach or would use automation more sparingly, not as a as the core of their business model. And, and I think if the designers of those apps and I think if the people who, you know, are working broadly in the AI music field were responsible for creating the economic model that you're talking about, then I think that there would be a lot of, I I would understand what you're saying, but I think that part of the conversation here, right, 
And I think, again, does this actually have to do with AI or does it have to do with lots of new creators coming in? And this notion that, okay, a 30 second white noise song, which we don't do at Boomi, but that is a thing that happens, right? Should that be paid in the same way? That is up to the platform. That's up to the consumer. That's up to the market, right? One wrapped up into all these conversations is this conversation about a, stream, a change to the streaming model, which I got to say, I, I could not agree with more. The notion of a pro of the pro rata as a musician, as an artist uh -huh. and as an independent artist never really made a lot of sense to me, to be honest with you. It makes probably and it opens up, I think, the door for some of what you're talking about. But ultimately, the it's the market's going to decide how those rules change and if there needs to be things like content standards if look if we could produce a billion songs next year are all of those going to every dsp as it exists today i don't know the we're midpoint right or probably early in figuring out what this new world looks like and i'm not going to take some sort of I, I would reject the notion of techno utopia and i mean i i really think that what we're approaching this as a team of artists and as a team of musicians and as people who really do deeply care about the let's call it the, the first hundred years of recorded music, right? And that's part of why we've been really loud about advocating for what does it look like for payment models? What does it look like to pay artists for training, to pay rights holders and publishers and everybody in the ecosystem? If it's true and kind of somewhat inevitable, AI or not, that there's going to be billions of artists in the future, there are systems that that we're all very familiar with that need to be updated, Right. And yeah. may maybe the prorated model is one of those that I, I don't, that's not well, me, right? I can't, can, how that's paid. We can go down that prorated rabbit hole in part two. I mean, that's something that's close to my heart, but I think there's a few things I want to tease out here. One, I'm very interested to learn of the stickiness of AI music. You're supplying a lot of content, but are you actually seeing demand, momentum, these types of compositions moving up the charts? For example, backstory, 20 million people streamed a fake Drake track. 20 million once each, so that nobody streamed it a second time. And that's what I found interesting there. But are you seeing genuine momentum happen with this AI music? You're I think of it- fan bases. It's a good question. And I think of it very differently. And I think we've always thought about this differently in mm -hmm. that we sort of on one side of the table, we're having a lot of conversations with industry, right? And they're asking, and we're having a lot of conversations along those lines, right? Can we fit this or can we think about this in terms of like, are you going to produce a hit? Are you going to produce a charting artist? On the other side of the table, we see our user base, right? Which of course is growing like crazy, where you have these people who are so inspiring, who are creating music oftentimes for the first time, oftentimes for highly personal reasons and personal context. You're talking about parents and kids making songs about their bedtime routines. You have people who are educators wow, and teachers are using it inside in of well i'm just saying there's right there's yeah. so many just hyper personalized contexts that people start creating music in that is a totally different and frankly very exciting and very new opportunity in how to create how to create meaning because it, it, if you'll let me rant a little bit longer on this point i think this is so important that what the music industry does at a in a simple way is they we try to create meaning around music, right? The more meaningful a song is to somebody, the more likely they are to continue to consume it and it drives economic activity, right? Intimacy. You can do that Intimacy. at a show. Intimacy, yeah, you can do that at a show. Live show is a great way to do that. You can do that through a marketing campaign. You can do that through all the different things that this industry has figured out how to do. And I think what we've stumbled upon here, or get it on a chart, right? Hey, it's like this chart position or that chart, but like that 
imbues this song, right, with a lot of meaning. And I think what we've hit on here is that there's a new, a, another way of creating meaning, right? And I call this the, your five favorite photos problem, right? Like if you think about your five favorite photos, you're probably in all of them or somebody took them of you and it probably doesn't belong in MoMA, right? It's maybe not the greatest photo in the world, but it has a meaning. And so we don't really, I do think it's inevitable that at some point, yeah, you're going to have songs that start to do pretty well for a wider audience here. But there's so many parallels, I think, in video mediums, in what we're seeing on social networks, where if you can tap the someone's personal connection, like that's what we're seeing drive consumption. And we're seeing that consumption mm -hmm. drive in a different way than I think the industry is used to thinking about music. And that's what's exciting for us and where we want to orient as a platform. I hear you. I hear you. Now, before we get to the break, just a couple of points to wrap up on. Alex, if it helps put wind in your sail, I can remind you that in the 1980s, when dance music got going, thanks to the godfather of DJing here, Greg Wilson, friend of the show, session musicians tried to block dance music from Radio 1 because it felt it put them out of business. <laughs> We've been here before, we'll be here again. There's... Or as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure as hell rhymes. I think there is so much history here. There's nearer history, there's far history. If you go back, so somebody sent me what there's these like political cartoons and they're from, I want to say like the early 1920s. Don't quote me on that. But basically at the point where they were replaced, they, it was the advent of recorded music and it was, we're going to put recorded music in theaters yeah. and you don't need a pianist anymore, right? You don't need a musician anymore. And the musicians union built these, yep. they created these cartoons of like these evil robots with like this big sack of like profits coming for so the concept of recorded music itself, it, like at all, has been here, right? And was fought and had. So there's so much historical precedent, to your point, with synthesizers that were pushed back on, with autotune that was pushed back on, even drum samples to some degree had some controversy around it. And so to me, it means that we are going to go through that cycle. I think we're ready and prepared for that cycle. It's going to be very in vogue, right, to, I think, beat up on AI media for a while. And then we're going to blink in five or six years. It's just, it's going to become very normal. That That's my prediction anyway. I could be wrong. Well, and, in part and, one, let me just wrap up on part one there real quick, because we I want to get into the training data debate in part two. Yeah. But I said earlier on, I learned hysteria on guitar. I think what you've inspired me to do is to go to Boomi, recreate hysteria, and ask ChatGPT to write the lyrics to calm people's down by the nerves they have around AI music today and see where that goes. <laughs> we could even get Joe Elliott to sing I, in his true voice and not have it computer manipulated like it was in 1987. But we, listen, we, we'll be back in part two. We yeah. are going to go down a rabbit hole on your training data. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you so much. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble. Myself, Richard Kramer, and Alex Mitchell from the AI music company Boomi, which has on its own put up more music than was available at the very peak of iTunes. Over 16 million songs from this relatively speaking unknown company. We're going to know a little bit more about it. And Alex, in part two, we'd like to go down the rabbit hole of deeper topics that we've maybe skimmed the stones off in part one. I thought the first one I've got to get to is the training data question. Now, for people who yeah, don't sure. understand AI, training data is such an intuitive term. You've got to give the machine something to learn from before it can perform its magic. And that's where like humans design algorithms too. But your training data, from my understanding, is different in that you're not requiring copyright music to get these the boomy effect to boom. Is that a fair description of yeah. how it works and what makes you distinct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I And this goes to what I was saying before about how AI is this catch-all term. There's a lot of different ways to create a song. I think mm-hmm. the first waves of AI music companies were not using some of the training mechanisms that people are talking about today as it pertain, pertains to LOMs, right? And we've been around for a while. We, I think what's core to understand about our approach is that Boomi is a team of musicians. Again, we care about this industry. We respect copyright. I would hope that our copyrights have the same sort of protections that anybody else's would. And the notion of taking someone's work, right, or taking the work of a songwriter, training a model with it and saying, sorry, that's mine now. I mean, that that does not sit right with me as an artist. It doesn't sit right with me as a technologist. And I think there, if you're going to do that, there needs to be a lot of there needs to be a way to pay for it. Right. But in terms of how we work today, look, there's like we there have been algorithmic musicians and ways of producing music in particular styles with algorithms for a very long time. And the best way I can describe this is that we're more on the Brian Eno spectrum to start, right, where you're creating algorithms that can produce in styles that are maybe not quite as accurate as you would get to if you were training a model on data that does that did use cop that did was subject to copyright. But over time, right, you can and especially through our user base, we can get to a point where we're to the extent that we're training models, we're only doing it on outputs of algorithms that we have internally developed and that we have internally refined as artists. You can think of this kind of as being like any other algorithmic musician in the pre-AI era, and we're just sharing that with other people, right? You can think of if somebody created a, a music algorithm and then invited somebody into the studio to manipulate it and use it, that's how we work. That's how we worked for a long time. I do think there are incredibly exciting technology advancements and massive opportunities for this industry in the licensing of training data. And that's where we, that's very much where we want to go and very much the conversation we've been in. Just one more on that one there, just real quick. Just, just so our audience is clear, if parents learn that their kids are using Boomi, they know that they're not infringing copyright material because Boomi itself is not training of copyright material. That's absolutely crucial to understanding what you guys are doing. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in the press there. You're trained, and that means if we move from one acronym to another, you're pretty much the closest thing we've got to AGI. Music is always the first to suffer and the first to recover, but you're not actually needing 
that human element to get going. Is that fair? Are we leaning into the AGI space with what Boomi is doing? Uh, I, I don't know that I would take it that far. I would say that you're looking at you're looking Maybe at a peeling a, into the window of what AGI might look like. Look, I, no, I think we we are we have a mission, right? We have an objective, mm-hmm. and that's to draw musicality out of people. We're going to use the best technology that we can use and the best systems that we can build in order to achieve that goal. And if that means, and look, years ago as we were scoping this, and there were researchers and people and a lot of these models that were based on the use of that copyright training data, it was kind of like, a, yeah, that's not, someday that's going to become a problem. Let's try to figure out a way where we can get started, draw creativity out of people, not circumvent, but get to a place where there can be a really positive and active conversation about licensing training data. And I wish that conversation happened three years ago, right? Uh-huh. That conversation is more, more happening now. I think ChatGPT really changed the game in showing everybody what can happen with, at least with text or with other media domains. And as we prepare for music's ChatGPT moment, so to speak, I do think there are, again, it's one of the biggest opportunities I've ever, I, you could possibly co- fathom that if there are going to be tons and tons of songs in the future that are coming out of these systems and you have a way of paying the artists and the songwriters and the rights holders inside of those systems. I mean, just imagine the universe of revenue that that can be created. And so that's what I just think is super interesting and why I would want to and why we've been so active on that front lately. Richard. So again, I'm going to take the skeptical position here because I'm going to go to the godfather of algorithms and you're playing with words. You're giving us a sort of subtle evasion because Bach Let's call Bach the godfather of algorithmic music. He's sure. a mathematical yeah. genius. He's, I don't know if you saw the film Tar. There was a beautiful scene there where the Kate Blanchett character is defending the beauty of Bach, the essential beauty. And he's over 70 years old, gone over 70 years. So he's certainly out of copyright. Now, does Boomi use Bach to train its algorithms? And if so, do we want to freely take from the rich legacy of musical history just based on what's available under a legal definition, really, that pretty much came out of one country. Uh, sorry, so so your question is, we uh, don't do, train do, any models on Bach today. You he's know. not in copyright, so some other AI he, could come along and say, it's not copyright music, we don't have to remunerate anyone, so we can just take one of the most brilliant classical musicians and really a godfather of algorithmic music, one could think of him that way, and use that as your training set. So you you could also take Bach and you could give it to a really novice performer and have them perform it in a horrible way. And how do you think Bach feels about that? Right. It's long gone. And well, Right. And so I, I guess I, I don't want I, I think I understand why you would have or why you're asking this. But I would say that if there are people out there who want to appreciate and who want to express themselves, if you're a musician, right? Let me simplify this. If you're a musician, and I've played plenty of Bach over the years as a violin player. I'm sure as um, a violinist. You, you study it, you learn it, you appreciate it, and you have time. You have time to do that, and you would be lucky to have time to do that. Again, I, we come at everything through this lens, and, it, and I'm not trying to be evasive at all when I say it. this is what we're trying to do, is bring musicality out of any human being in the way that they could if they had that time and that education and everything that that I was lucky to have. Not everybody can take violin lessons. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to express themselves with the sound of a violin and imp- with the influence, right, of of those great of those great composers. I guess what I'm saying is what 
I think embedded in your question is that there's some sort of problem, right? That we've taken this thing that people are doing, which is listening to Bach, becoming inspired, expressing themselves with a lot of automation, right? You could drag the MIDI file of a Bach song, put it into a digital audio workstation, and you could put some some synthesizers on it, and there you go, mm-hmm. right? So, so I guess why is training a model with Bach problematic if that other thing that I just described, which is taking that same composition and either creating your own version of it or creating a really bad version of it, like what's, what is different to you in, in, it, it sounds like you're saying that one of those things is okay. And one of those things isn't okay. I guess, why is that? Especially as it pertains to I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you protect the kernel of invention that stands behind 500 years of music history? Or do you say that once it's older than 70 years, it's all fair game? And once you do that, you open up a whole range of music that can be expropriated without remuneration. Because I'm just pushing back on this notion that you're going to create a universe of new creator income. And it's built on the backs of people. Okay, well, it's 70 years gone now, so maybe their heirs are, they're out of luck. But where, and this is a wider point about AI, because it's about standing on the shoulders of those who came before you. It's about the difference between sort of organic creation and borrowing and this very woolly line between plagiarism and invention. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I understand your question. And I I don't know that I'm the right person to answer the copyright policy on the 70 years, right? It would also suggest that you could create a streaming service or some other sort of use of this content after that, that expiration window. Not a question I've gotten before. It's definitely something I want to think about. I don't know that I'm the best person to talk about expiration windows on copyright. I think where where I can be helpful in understanding this stuff, right, and I think the understanding can reduce some of the fear, is just talking about how people are using it. So I'll, I'll give you mm-hmm. a good example. In Boomi's being used in tons of classrooms, right, which was not necessarily intentional on our part. It's just we saw all these teachers and we're like, hey, what are you doing? And what we learned... I, th- I think, again, you're coming at it from this point, and I hear this perspective a lot, that is fundamentally like this is a machine producing music, right? And that's the thing that I just keep wanting to put, that I just don't see. Because right. when, if you're in a classroom and you're teaching music production or you're teaching music composition, right? One of the things that we've heard is that it's really hard to get students to complete, to basically get all the way through. There's so many different things that they have to learn, even if you show them a digital audio workstation. And so when you start a class with Boomi, with saying, hey, here's some simple, a simpler interface, sliders, BPMs, instrumentations, and you can start from a fully completed song. Right. And invariably what happens is they go, whoa, like I want to do more. Okay, let's graduate to a digital audio workstation. Let's graduate to learning more about music, right? I very much look at what we're doing as an on-ramp, not only to express yourself yeah. with music, but also to maybe participate in the music industry in a greater way and care in a greater way. And if there's a model that's been trained with Bach that helps you get there, I guess it's I, an education. It, it, well, sure, but also that education can happen in a classroom. It can happen on your phone in, in your a, bedroom, the yeah. subway, right? Like I, I just see that as being. It's not as if we are out there to create a better Bach. It's it's yeah, that yeah. increasing the participation that I think necessitates the like. Would you rather we not have Bach, right? In, no, in, I think in, your yeah. point about increasing participation is great. I have one more question. I'm going to throw it back to Will. But, you know, what I fear, and broadly with all this AI, is it comes down to access to compute resource and the immense piles of money that are owned by and resource pools that are owned by big tech. 
So what stops these big tech companies from listening to all those 16 million tracks and training off of the songs that Boomi throws onto any one of the streaming platforms to write better, cheaper, faster songs or come up with more efficient tools? How do you think about that always evolving towards monopolization digital economy that we have? Tech eating tech. We've, we have had so many promises of democratization of the creator economy, and it all ends up back to the the peak of the pyramid and nothing on much for the long tail. It's a really good question. Let me give you a dinner party answer. <laughs> There's some dessert you, by this point. There's some dessert. <laughs> which is a story, and I got to protect the identities here, but I was in a conversation with somebody at a DSP, and it was a pretty intense conversation about partially that subject. And I guess my base answer to your question is what prevents big tech from, from all that stuff that you said? hopefully for us would be regulation and copyright and the fact that we're like, we're pretty unique because we're a music company that is also developing AI technology that has music rights, but also has, is using our own rights and wants to license other rights. So we're in a lot of, we're in a lot of the middle of this stuff, right? It's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. But I think there's a lot of sort of pontification. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of panels. I was talking to this person and we shared a slight kinship over figure. We have to make those decisions right? They have to figure that out. And something that was really interesting that came out of that conversation was this notion that let's take, let's look at the history, right? You've got, let's just pull out two live crew, right? As that fa very famous case, right? And you had a situation where I'm not saying it's exactly the same. I'm not equivocating, but just in, in terms of the history, you have a situation where there was an artist, they created some stuff. It was considered very offensive. It was sampling things without permission or whatever. And it was banned. It was actually banned, like the legislature got together and they banned this album and they pulled it from stores, right? And there was a decision. And like, imagine a universe where that was it. And then no hip, basically hip hop, probably, and a whole gigantic cultural movement, right? Would essentially not, maybe not have ended, but definitely have gone a different way if it did just stopped there with, okay, that's too offensive. That's using uncleared sample, like can't sell it. You're done, right? Of course, that's not what happened. Of course, there was a First Amendment case, a very famous First Amendment case that overturned it and said, look, in, at least in this country, we believe that people should be able to express themselves in music and you have to be able to sell this. And it opened that door. Right. I think what's interesting, and I'm only making this point about big tech because because you brought it up, but I don't think that's the way that things are going to go in, in this way. I think it's going to be people inside of tech companies and inside of DSPs now right? Deciding what is and what isn't going to go forward. And I think those are really, it, when I look at the role of big tech, I don't look at it cynically, right? I look at it as the reality is the consumers have oriented around a relatively small number of platforms, the policies of which are going to impact the market in a pretty outsized way. And I don't think there are, I don't think there are, <clears throat> I don't think they're sitting around over piles of gold saying, oh boy, how do we, how can we be evil? I really think they're, from personal experience, they're struggling with some of the same questions that you are, that we are, about what this future is going to look like. And I don't think there are, I think there's far more questions than answers at this moment in time. Absolutely, absolutely. But these perspectives are really useful there. So I do think it's important that big tech understands its responsibility in being sort of the, like, it's going to be their decisions, what to let on and what not to let on. And obviously AI is a yep. big topic in that realm right now. And it's interesting when you say struggling with these questions, just like perhaps 18 months, two years ago, they were struggling with questions on content moderation. And I always like to quote the famous line where 
Mark Zuckerberg announced to Wall Street that he had 10,000 people working on content moderation and the stock price fell. (laughs) That's a great symbol of America. What? You're taking this stuff seriously? Dump the stock. I think he now employs more than 60,000 people in content moderation. We're going to move to smoke signals. Richard will tee you up for that. But to keep our listeners listening as they go to desserts and after dinner coffees, fun fact, you talked about not being an expert in what content is now in the public domain. And Richard, your point about back is really important. If we're going to talk about Benjamin Britten, which is still in copyright, that's one thing. If we're going to talk about back and Beethoven, that's a whole different thing. Did you know, Dot, did you know which composer and which compositions, well famous, went into the public domain this month? Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. So go get Boomy ramping that up on Monday morning. <laughs> Richard, time to get him smoking. Yeah, so we... we... Trying to throw our guests uh, the question of what are the smoke signals, the kind of things that you hear that make you go, "Uh uh-uh, in this debate about whatever topic we're having our podcast on, in this case, AI and music. What are the one or two things that people say about AI and music, and maybe I've inadvertently echoed them, that are just (laughs) the most irritating inanities that you've come across and just say, well, no, you just really don't get what this is all about. Believe me, if I, I could probably rant for an hour on the... We're on not going to do but that. I'm going to start with... I don't, we're we're I'm, aware I'm, of lung cancer issues here, I would, so just take two puffs on that cigarette. I think... Uh, so So one of them, and I really don't mean this to push back on you at all, but you said it, so I want to bring it up, is legitimate artists, right? That That's one where I start to wince, not just... In part because it's such a complicated question, right? And we have... there There is not... And again, I, I don't... I have, I clearly have a bias, right? I have a bunch of different, I have competing biases. I have a musician bias. I have a a sort of policy advocate bias. I have a a Mm. boomy bias into that question. But I think what is a legitimate artist that quote unquote belongs on the shelf and saying that, well, because that's different or it's it's not about, it's probably not going to chart. Like the idea that you're going to have that, that someone's going to decide that because of the way, and this isn't existential, by the way, this is real time. That, for example, because of the way a musician creates their song, they should be paid differently is a totally unprecedented idea. It would be akin to saying like, well, look, you've got autotune in that song. That's not a legitimate singer. Pay him 25 percent less or maybe don't even include or, them along with all these other. Or, reels, or right? a harp is more expensive. Recorder, right. So, well, you used a you used an or a synthesizer for your orchestra. You didn't hire a real right. orchestra. You probably pay that. Well, I guess I guess on this question uh, right? of so, legitimate artists, though, I, I was trying to draw a distinction between companies that are simply generating music for commercial intent with no real artistic aims versus the thousands and tens of thousands of people using DistroKid in their bedrooms to upload music because they're passionate about it. And the illegitimacy is really in the subversion of the commercial model of music to extract money. And for no, none of the passion that you expressed might be between parents and kids writing their own bedtime song. Yeah, sure. But I would also say that I've heard some music from those legitimate artists, some of which seem, I want to say neutral and I don't want to call anybody out, but there was, I had a moment and I have to stay vague here where I was listening to a song by a rapper who I guess one could describe as a mumble rapper. And this was, this would be, and and the the lyric and the lyric was some, something to the effect of like, they said, they reference in it. I'm trying to keep this vague because I'm again, politically neutral on this stuff, but they made a mistake in the lyrics. Let's just call it a mistake. 
And the mistake was so glaringly obvious and created such a... It, obviously, this person does not have an understanding of instruments, right? If they're going to make that mistake in the lyric, it's also kind of incredible that it got all the way through the release with that mistake in the lyrics. And I remember sitting back and thinking like, and that had a huge amount of streaming volume on it. That was like a chart. It was like on the charts. So I think you can, as look, as a violinist, I think frets are cheating. I think you can draw that purity line anywhere you want. And I think you can make that purity line. I, I think if you drew that purity line through the people who are making music for commercial intent, like I know a lot of artists who, yes, they're expressing an artistry, but they want to make, they want to make money off of it. And they're going to, some people see volume as a way of doing that. I'm talking about artists who are signed to labels who you would totally put in legitimate category. And that's just one, I just don't think it's that simple, right? And that's why it's a smoke signal to me, right. is okay. that I think it's okay. a door that opens towards like, this is real, that's not real, this counts, that doesn't count. And right. maybe that's where it lands, but we should at least understand that's a totally unprecedented idea, not something right. that anybody's ever And by ever the way, right before. now, there is a complete parallel, which we should have another podcast on in the news industry because there are dozens of AI-generated fake news websites which are just borrowing content oh, sure. from other websites to simply attract clicks and revenue. And that's what I see as illegitimate, if you will. Another smoke signal? I would say, you, you hit on them like in the very beginning of this podcast, dilution bit, I think, too, which again, is similar, right? But this idea that you're diluting the pool or that it's the fault of a content creator or it's the fault of a... a the, a, ki a kid in their bedroom, to borrow your phrasing, that there is so much, that there is a lot of content uh -huh. coming out a day. I've been having a lot of conversations recently about the quote unquote 120,000 songs a day problem, right? It's like, well, what are we going to do about the 120,000 songs a day problem? And this gets me in trouble sometimes, but I, what's the problem? Like, yeah. why is that a problem? It's also True. a small number. Remember the photos number is like hundreds of millions. And this is something that more and more people are going to be doing. And to get to something that you said, actually, I think more in part one, I don't think this has, this is going to really impact what we would call, or maybe what you would call traditional or pre-AI or whatever, legitimate, to use your terms. I don't think this really affects that market. I think this grows the entire market. The, this fear of dilution is really just based on how I think the economic reality sits today, but that's going to change. It always changed and it'll continue to change, right? And I do think this will be a forcing function for some of it, but you know, we have to be thoughtful about how we accomplish that. So that's another one that just kind of makes me like dilution. Like there's th you're, this indie music, right? Like right. that's, I don't, I'm never going to see indie music as being dilution. And personally, as somebody who came from that world, I'm not going to look at, it's not for me to judge, I guess, yeah. what and, and, counts and, and what doesn't count. And there's an incredible and growing role for, and there was a brilliant interview with him just recently on Music Business Worldwide, the art DJs like Giles Peterson, who have 150 or 200 or 500,000 records to choose from, and they have three hours to curate in them houses. into on a, on a Saturday sure. afternoon. And you want to listen to those three hours because you know that selection among all of the stuff that Boomy and everybody else puts out is so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I to, to my knowledge, AI has not impacted that culture at all. Yeah. In, in some, in any way. Alex, if I can take a minute to bring it all to a close. And the first thing I want to say is muchas gracias, merci beaucoup, danke schön, thank you, on behalf of myself, Richard, and our audience. And our audience isn't Harry and Meghan Big, nor is the money we're making Harry and Meghan Big, which is, by the way, way more money than was reported. That's for another podcast. But I would stress, like, we've had 
Usually this podcast is Richard Kramer taking to task bankers on Wall Street, but we've had Jessica Powell from Audio Shake, Ed Newton Rex, the founder Straight. of Duke Deck, yeah, yeah. and now yourself. We've possibly got the podium of gold, silver, bronze AI musos to come on the show and sit out their stall. Now, when you set out your stall, I just want to wrap up with two comments. One, your point about education is huge for me. If you're going to hire a VP of policy, I'm sending my resume to Boomi tomorrow. <laughs> because there's one way that you could prove the effect of Boomi, which is do classes which involve Boomi see children maintain a music education for longer than it would otherwise be the case? That is, at least in the Scottish education system, once you get to 14, 15, you can drop music and never study it again. Would a classroom that has Boomi see a lot of those kids who would have dropped pursue it to 16, 17? Would be an amazing policy angle for you guys to explore. Second and closing point is one I've reiterated on this topic before. Capitalism was described to me by Alan Blinder, famous Federal Reserve governor when I was at university. He said to me, capitalism is when you employ a gardener to cut your grass because you can do something more productive with your time. Look at the GitHub Copilot case. It's a threat to coders. Now coders see it as an opportunity. I can code four times faster thanks to GitHub Copilot. I wonder whether AI in the broadest term is just one big F-off gardener and what Boomi is doing is providing that gardener for the form of music creation into the future. So Alex, huge thank you for coming on Bubble Trouble, man. You've set out your stall very impressively and I, I want to get you back on because we've got so many rabbit holes to explore here. But thanks for giving our audience an introduction to what Boomi's doing. And good luck with the next 60 million songs that's going to come from the platform. <laughs> if you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.